Welcome to the Nuclear Lounge Podcast. I am your host, Fernando Anleo. I am nuclear medicine technologist, and it is my honor to guide you through this captivating journey into the world of nuclear medicine. Today, we are very fortunate to invite an individual who consistently pushes further the field of nuclear medicine, advocating for the profession and showing us why it's important to have a voice and use it to achieve predetermined objectives. Let me introduce Sarah Gibbons. Sarah, it is a pleasure having you here. Thank you, Fernando. It's great to be here. So, Sarah, we are eager to hear your story. When you started your journey before you were a nuclear medicine student, did you always know you wanted to do nuclear medicine? No, I had no idea. So, in college, uh, I was on a nursing track. So, I picked nursing because I knew I wanted a health professions field. Nursing is what I knew, what people were talking about. So, I picked it quickly decided that probably nursing wasn't for me, so I met with the academic advisor. He had a a list of different types of health professions. Um, From scrolling through that list, I came across nuclear medicine. The name sounded cool, and that's why (laughs) I picked the program. So I'm in nuclear medicine because we have a cool name. There you go. Um, I also had a different path to nuclear medicine, but what's really impressive is that many of us had a somewhat similar situation. So you came into the profession and quickly learned what nuclear medicine was all about. Now, as a student, what would you say was your toughest subject or maybe something that you struggled with the most and how did you overcome it? Yeah, I would say the toughest subject would be nuclear medicine physics. I mean, who finds nuclear medicine physics easy? (laughs) Yes. Uh, So the students in the program, we all quickly realized that we were all going to fail nuclear physics if we didn't band together. So we would cram and study uh, the morning of. So I would get up, I was already commuting to school, so over an hour, and I would get to the hospital, which was right next door to our school. I would get to the cafeteria and the nuclear medicine students would be there. We would sit there and quiz each other with the PowerPoints for two and a half hours and then walk over to the nuclear medicine building and take the exam. So that's how we were able to get through nuclear medicine physics because it is a difficult subject. No, and I totally agree. I think uh, physics is very vital to the profession. So all those listeners, students, uh, get on that physics for sure. Um, So after all the fun craziness going through the program, uh, you graduated took your boards, and had your first experience of the first job where that safety net from internship was gone. Do you feel like internship prepared you well for that first jump, or was there an adaptation uh, you had to adjust to? Yeah, so I graduated from the Indiana University School of Medicine program in 2016. Our program is a bachelor's degree, and it's actually set up quite differently than other programs. Uh, We don't have an internship, so we don't apply to be at a hospital. How our program works is that uh, once you get accepted into the program, you do your nuclear medicine courses, but you also are put into the clinic setting at the same time. So for the 24-month program, then we're doing uh, clinic as well as the classes. And our clinic is we don't go to just one. We have about 13 different clinic sites that we uh, go to. So we have one at a nuclear pharmacy. We have one at different hospital settings. We have a quality control, a radiation safety office clinic course. So we're in different clinics, which gives us an opportunity to see how different technologists and different institutions do their exams differently. So the program did prepare us for different types of experiences that we've, we would find out in the field. 
Uh, I got a full-time position down in Bedford, Indiana, which is a rural hospital. Nice. And when I went into that position, the reason that the position was available is because the full-time technologist was retiring. So this was a one-tech hospital at a slower institution. It's a critical access hospital, so the maximum beds that we have are 30 beds. And so when I went in there, the technologist there was retiring in the next five days. So as a brand new graduate of a, of a program, I was then thrown into a department where I am the lead. I do all of the um, ACR accreditation, all of the exams. I filter all of the questions from management. So it was a tough transition. The program did help a lot having that different type of clinic experience. Um, I would say what would help improve it is that if we had more management courses, um, talking about what general nuclear medicine departments deal with versus just like the, the clinical protocols that we perform in clinics. So kind of a full picture of what it means to be in a hospital, in a department, if you were running it by yourself. Wow, yeah, no, that was quite the adaptation. I feel like being able to manage something with that immensity, I think, is very dire. So I completely agree with you on that. So once you became part of Indiana University's Health Bedford Hospital, you moved to different positions, like you mentioned. Uh, you went from technologist to RSO to team lead and now the program clinical instructor. Are you able to help us understand the day-to-day -day operations of your position, maybe share an overview of patients you're in Iraq with? Mm -hmm, sure. So first and foremost, I'm a nuclear medicine technologist. Um, so again, our department is small. We did hire a part-time technologist, so it's myself and one other person a couple of days a week. Uh, typically, I am in direct patient care all of the time. So in our rural hospital, we don't see the more innovative studies. We typically do the bread and butter of nuclear medicine. So our most common exam are our myocardial perfusion imaging studies. We do HIDA studies, we do bone studies, um, and we do about 80 patients a month uh, in the hospital setting at where I work. So um, that's typically what I see day to day, but as you mentioned, I am the radiation safety officer. Uh, so we perform audits on all of uh, the equipment as well as all of the reports to prepare uh, for any type of inspections that we do. Um, I do accreditation, so we are ACR, the American College of Radiology accredited, uh, so I have to perform that application every three years. And then um, I do typical secretary work for nuclear medicine, so I make patient phone calls to remind them of the procedure since we're not as busy as other institutions. I have that time to kind of make that personal connection, talk to them before they get there at the hospital. And then when I get them from the waiting room, I can tell them, hey, my name is Sarah, we spoke yesterday on the phone. And so I feel like it makes for more personalized medicine. Um, so I really enjoy working there. And it, being a smaller institution affords me more opportunities to connect with patients. That's awesome, and thank you for shedding light on how what the radiation safety officer does. That was actually my next question, so I appreciate that. And yeah, some students might be interested in, in our career as a radiation safety officer, so what are some of the requirements for that position, and any thoughts you want to share on that? Yeah, so I will say Indiana is a non-agreement state, okay. so we do not have a state department that audits us. Instead, the NRC comes down and audits us, so that's the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. So we report directly to the NRC, and they are responsible for our audits. 
Uh, so to be listed on an NRC license, so your radioactive material license that every hospital has to have, um, or their equivalent state department license, to be listed, you have to have additional training. So um, you get most of it through a nuclear medicine program. So the, the radiation biology that you have in your program um, allows for some of the prerequisites. But what I had to do to become radiation safety office officer at my hospital is that I uh, went to a radiation safety program. So I actually attended the Dade Moeller uh, Medical Radiation Safety Officer Program in Maryland. It's a five-day program. Um, so they flew me out there. I was there for five days and we learned all aspects of radiation. Um, so that gave me more of the, the prerequisites and the requirements to become the radiation safety officer. Once I went through that program, I then had to work under a radiation safety officer for a year. Uh, so our radiologist was the radiation safety officer. So I worked under him. Um, he showed me all of the reports and everything that was required to be the radiation safety officer, just training typically for a year. Uh, once I had that year training and with my Dade Muller uh, medical radiation safety officer training, and my nuclear medicine training, we submitted the application to the NRC and I was accepted to be the RSO at the hospital. Now, Sarah, you're a part of numerous communities in both chapter and national bodies. I have had numerous students and technologists come up to me and ask, hey, I want to get involved in communities, but I have no idea how to do that. Are you able to give us an overview on how the chapters and national governing bodies structure? Of course. So my biggest advice I would say is to start at a grassroots level. Uh, so we are currently in the central chapter, so you're out of Michigan, I'm out of Indiana, so that's all a part of the central chapter. There are 12 different chapters in our organization, and these chapters report up to the national level. So you have an organizational chart for the chapter level as well as the national level. So start at the chapter level, come to the chapter meetings. We have two um, continuing education in-person meetings a year. We have one at the Central Chapter Spring Annual Meeting, typically in March. And then we have a second one, which is in the fall. Um, it's an education symposium, typically in October. So the Friday before these continuing educational meetings, um, are set to go live, we meet for governance. So every Friday before the meeting, we're already there um, at the hotel meeting for governance. So if you want to get involved, I would recommend to go to governance. Um, you do not have to be a committee member. Um, all you have to do is be a member of the Society of Nuclear Medicine and Molecular Imaging to come. And you can just sit in our little gallery area. You can take it all in, see how um, governance works. So the committees meet there. We vote and approve on things there. Um, and that's really kind of the behind the scenes, how we're keeping our nuclear medicine field relevant and how we're supporting our nuclear medicine members. Uh, so come to those governance meetings, which are Friday before at the cent central chapter level. For the national level, they have a very similar organizational chart. They have governance um, right before their meetings too. At the national level, there's two meetings a year as well. So those are typically in January, that's the midwinter meeting. And then you typically have one in June, which is the annual meeting. They have their own organizational chart, like I mentioned, so they have their own governance. So the meeting typically starts on Saturday. They're meeting two days prior, so Thursday and Friday before the meeting, they're 
um, gathering together and having these committee member meetings as well as um, a council, so a national council of representatives to talk about issues facing our field and how to move our organization forward. Those are also free to attend, so it's open. You guys can come in, you can absorb how everything works without actually being involved. But with the idea that you start locally at a grassroots, make those network connections early, get your name out there, and then you can move up the ranks nationally. Thank you so much for being so thorough with that uh, response. So we are currently at the national meeting in Chicago. Um, what are you most excited about? Uh, anything in particular, like a speaker, lecture, poster, or a vendor? So what was really exciting that this meeting um, was able to achieve is uh, a lot of people don't hear about nuclear medicine until they're actually in college. So we were able to put together a nuclear medicine high school recruitment event for the first time ever where we um, offered high school students from the local surrounding area as well as we sent it out nationwide that if you're a high school student you want to learn more about nuclear medicine come to our meeting and we hosted them for half a day we introduced them to different types of nuclear medicine exams what entails nuclear medicine the educational program pathways because you can go from certificate all the way up to the master's level for entry nuclear medicine um, so we introduce them early on so that they know that this is a good pathway for them. Even if you're pre-med, this is a great undergraduate degree for you uh, because things happen later on in life. If you get through your bachelor's program, you're a nuclear medicine technologist, you plan to go to medical school, but then something happens, you're tr a trained technologist. So you can go out into the field and work and get an income versus other pre-med students who maybe have did biology, they don't have that same opportunity. And you get clinical patient experience as well. Um, so then that gives you a leg up for med school. So this is a great career pathway. We hosted this for them for half a day um, and it was well received. We had 55 people that registered for the event. So it was well received and we're gonna continue to do this. So this was really exciting and I was able to be a speaker at that event. No, I think that that's super great, um, being able to give this to students so that they can learn early on what nuclear medicine is all about. So thank you for doing that. Actually, going off that, um, I was actually fortunate to be part of the first SNMITS Student Leadership Academy, uh, class of 2023. It was the first time they were able to do that. Uh, the ART put that together, and it was, it was well-received. We had over, I believe, over 60, about 70 students that showed up, and just it was great. Uh, Sean Dunning mm -hmm. was the speaker, and he did an amazing, outstanding job at getting you know people energized into the profession. So I'm looking forward to that taking off and seeing what next year brings. Yeah, we had over 70 uh, student leaders come in to attend this academy. Uh, so some history on the Leadership Academy. I went through this academy as a student. So this was the the Society of Nuclear Medicine molecular imaging technologist section, leadership academy for their technologists. And we were receiving so many student applications, but we only have so many student spots. So we felt it important that we don't want to turn these new professionals away, that we need to provide them with the resources and maybe guide that leadership academy specific to what they need. So it's a wonderful opportunity. We're going to continue it year after year. It was a huge success. And even if you graduate, let's say in May, 
Um, and our annual meeting is typically in June. Even if you graduate and you're, you're already a technologist, but within that year, you can come to this Leadership Academy. So it's a great opportunity to get involved. Um, it's free to attend. You just have to get here. So I would recommend that everybody um, on this call, if you're a current student or if you just graduated and then the June meeting is the, the month after, come to the meeting as a student and see what uh, this annual meeting is all about. Registration fees are free for students. So if you come as a student member then and you register as a student member, then you get in for free and you can see all of the meetings and go to all of the CE uh, lectures as well. So you experience everything at a very discounted free rate. And I just want to clarify that there's a technologist leadership academy and there's a student leadership academy. Well, now that you just started, you know. Sarah, what do you think would be your advice to students, whether they're coming up or they're already in the program? What, what would that look like? My biggest advice is to find a mentor. And I know that that's difficult sometimes, but on the society's website, there's an opportunity where you can sign up to be a mentee. So you can go in and then they can pair you with a mentor virtually. You guys can talk um, over email, over the phone, whatever you want to do and how you want to communicate. And then also go to these in-person meetings. I know everybody wants to do virtual now, but these in-person meetings are wonderful for networking. You meet so many people. Um, I feel like I've been involved for the last seven years here and I started my involvement as a student. I have so many connections that I feel if I lost my job, I can call somebody up that I know from the society, they would have a job for me. So it is huge to have this mentor and to get out and go to these in-person meetings just for networking. If you're nervous, you could always just come and sit and absorb and see how governance works. And then people are going to approach you at this meeting and you can talk to them and they can help mentor you or they can find you somebody that is close to your location. Because we know a lot of people nationwide since this is a national society. That's funny you mentioned that because uh, on our last uh, podcast, um, Dr. Buner explained how important it was to have a mentor. So that's great. So for all our listeners, go get a mentor. <laughs> and last but not least, what is your favorite radioisotope or radiopharmaceutical and why? Yeah, so I'm going to have to pick, this is very basic, but sodium protectinate. Ah, that's not basic. I love sodium protectinate. Sometimes. Right. <laughs> With UltraTag. So um, I did a research study at Indiana University. So since we're at a bachelor's level, there's time to do a research project. Um, I conducted a research project on UltraTag kits uh, to see the necessity of adding heparin into those kits. So we all know from the package insert that it requires some sort of anticoagulant property um, to put into these kits so their blood does not clot. Uh, however, some institutions were citing that heparin, it was hard to get a hold of. Um, they were citing that, well, UltraTag in the package insert already says that it has some anticoagulant properties in the kit itself, so maybe we don't need an uh, anticoagulant addition into the vial. So I did a research project to see 
um, if heparin was really necessary. And what I found was that blood does clot if you don't use that additional heparin or that additional anticoagulant. Um, this, um, I ended up writing a research paper um, as part of the program. It was actually accepted into the Journal of Nuclear Medicine Technology. So as a student, I submitted a research paper and got accepted for publication. And then that publication went on to receive the Editor's Choice Award for being one of the top manuscripts published for that year. Uh, so I would say UltraTag is definitely near and dear to my heart, and I will always love it. Check you out, superstar, <laughs> of course. Well, Sarah, our time has run out. Thank you so much for being part of this, and uh, we would love to have you again sometime in the future, okay? Yeah, thanks so much, Fernando. Until next time.